On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, a very busy podcast, we are talking about the budget and the debt. We are talking about COVID. And remember that Blue Jay game in Texas where there were 40,000 people? What happened as a result of that? We'll talk about that. We are talking about the Ontario Hockey League canceling its season at last. Owner of the Bulldogs joins us. And we're talking about the George Floyd verdict with Jeff Manishin, criminal defense lawyer. Fascinating topic, fascinating story. All of that coming up stay with us today on the scott radley show on 900 chml you know that we had a budget yesterday we talked about it on the show uh big 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 money that is going to be spent on a variety of an endless 700 pages worth of a variety of programs and issues and well i mean name your thing it probably um it probably has something in the budget that money is going to be going towards. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of money we're spending a lot of money. We're going to be spending. Well, I wanted to bring on somebody because there was one thing in this and I look, I've been screaming this for a long time and um, understandably no one seems to listen. <laughs> well, I found someone who did and I'm thankful for that. I want to bring on Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian taxpayers federation. Eric, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, as I say, we talked about this, uh, about the budget on the air yesterday, went through a lot of the different things. But the reason I wanted you ha- to have you on today more than anything, uh, although we will cover other things, is a tweet that you sent out today that reflects something that I have been screaming from the mountaintops forever. Nobody seems to listen, except thankfully you. And it's this, we hear from so many people that taking on debt is smart politics, smart business right now, because interest rates are really low and it's a good time to do all these things. But we're spending, or we will be spending, we have to service that debt. And the amount of money that we are going to be spending to service the debt that we are taking on over the next number of years is absolutely staggering. Thank you for pointing it out. We've said in the budget, we're going to spend $30 billion on childcare, which is an extraordinary amount of money. We're going to pay five times that much over the next five years, just on interest payments on our debt. How is everybody missing this or ignoring this? Yeah, it's fascinating, Scott, because, you know, this $30 billion childcare plan, it's $30 billion over five years. It's the centerpiece. Everyone's talking about it. They're talking. It's so much money. It's really a lot of money flowing to this. And yet right there, right in the same table, five times as much money, $153 billion over the same period is going to interest payments. And yet that's not getting a mention. And I find it staggering that, you know, if $30 billion is a lot of money, what's $153 billion? That is a that is an insane amount of money, and it's going to nothing. It is going to interest payments. So, you know, I understand that people have a tendency with these budgets, uh, and politicians can't resist, you know, make people happy, think you're giving people something for nothing, but you can't get away from it. Somebody has to pay for this later, and, you know, it's going to be either us, our kids, or our grandkids, and the amount of debt they are racking up is, is pretty eye-watering, and I'm, I'm concerned that more people don't worry about, you know, what's going to happen a few years down the road. Yeah, you know, again, I just, I, I don't get, and look, I, I understand that we need to do things and we're in COVID and we've, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and I'm not saying that we should have spent nothing, 
but it does seem that people are buying this idea that you can get something for nothing. They're pointing out in the budget in 2026, we are going to spend in Canada $39 billion in that year alone on interest payments, more than the cost of this national childcare plan and a bunch of other things that we could have done with $39 billion. Yeah, and look, uh, you're right about the COVID point, and I think it's important to point out that uh, really our complaint in our organization, it's not about the COVID spending, it's about what we were doing before and after. Uh, you know, this government was piling up debt well before the pandemic ever hit, and if you look at this budget, the overwhelming chunk of the new spending has nothing to do with COVID. It is all things that are completely unrelated to COVID. It's permanent spending. You know, the daycare item again, this was something that they did not even dream of doing in their budget, the last budget before COVID. The deficit was only $20 billion. There was no talk of a $30 billion daycare system. And yet now the deficit is 10 times bigger. We piled up all this debt and suddenly they believe they can spend $30 billion. I just think that's, that's not, uh, doesn't make sense to me. Here's another one in Ontario. So this is just the federal stuff, 153 billion that we're going to flush down the toilet over the next five years. Ontario is spending an additional $12.5 billion a year in flushing down the toilet money, paying for interest. And that's now, and it's climbing because we know that our debt is rising in Ontario. Again, I go back to this. How does, how are politicians so successful at hiding this kind of spending or making people not see it. It's, it's, it's like the emperor's new clothes. I don't even know what the metaphor is, but w- people don't look at this. They ignore this amount of money. It's not shiny or something. I don't know, but how do, how do they do this? How do they make people ignore it? Yeah, I think a couple of ways. I mean, one is this stuff is invisible, right? Debt is not something that you see, but you can cut a ribbon in front of a factory or you can, you know, op- open a brand opening of a new school or a hospital or whatever, right? That people, it's a tangible thing and people will focus on that. The other is uh, the immediacy of it, right? I think all people have a tendency to focus on what's right in front of them. And boy, if you're getting free childcare next year, you're not really thinking about who's paying the bill 5, 10, 15 years later. And a lot of politicians get away with this, get themselves into office and, and deliver all the good news. And they're long gone by the time the, the bill collector comes. So, you know, one last thing I'd say on the debt point, uh, not to make it any scarier, is that $153 billion, that's assuming that interest rates stay at rock bottom lows that they are today. If those interest rates start to creep up, anyone who's got a mortgage understands this. If you've got a, a fixed rate mortgage and you have to renew and the rate has jumped, it has a massive impact on the cost. And so the government's really rolling the dice here, just crossing their fingers that interest rates are basically going to stay low uh, for a very long time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, you mentioned about interest rates. That's obviously true. If interest rates start to go up, we're in big, big trouble. But there's there's something else about this. At a certain point, because we're, we're talking about running deficits in perpetuity. The government did not talk about finding a balanced budget anytime soon. So the number is going to continue to go up of how much we're spending to service this debt. At a certain point, do we not just run into two options? Either we have to raise taxes to pay for this, or we have to start cutting programs. Is there a third option I'm missing? No, that's really the, the gist of it. I mean, the, I think what the government is banking on, and it, it, again, it's a roll of the dice, is if the economy grows quickly, then your revenues grow quickly and you can actually close that gap without changing anything, right? So that, it's, it's possible to do that, but boy, the stars have to line up exactly right. And really, this government is banking on a rate of growth in the economy that we really haven't seen in the last 20 years. And it's not clear why they would expect 
um, it to suddenly change. So, you know, I'm not saying what the government is hoping for is impossible. I'm just saying that it's very unlikely uh, based on their past track record and, and the performance of the economy over the last one. Well, and what I find ironic, and, and this is entirely circumstantial and, and uh, that I'm, I'm talking about this, but it appears anyway, when I go online, when I listen to calls on radio shows and everything, many of the people who seem to be very much in favor of what's happening and all this spending sound and seem to be younger, but aren't they the ones, and it's, again, ironically, aren't they the ones that either they or their children are potentially the ones who are going to be stuck carrying the freight of this? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But, you know, I, I can chalk that up to maybe, uh, you know, there's an old saying about you don't really appreciate the impact of taxes until you start earning a paycheck, right? And I think uh, it really has, you really have to feel the pain yourself individually until you, before you actually realize um, what a burden some of these things can become. So I don't begrudge young people. I mean, if you're, especially if you haven't had a, as good a deal as, say, your parents or grandparents in terms of job opportunities and don't even get started talking about things like housing prices, um, the idea that you might get a little something more for what seems to be free uh, can can sound pretty appealing to a lot of people. I mean, I guess, and and that's totally understandable. But at the same time, if if I if someone offers me, and I looked this up the other day because someone had mentioned it, if someone offered me a Bugatti, a, a two million dollar sports car for free, that sounds amazing until I take it in for my first oil change. And I, and I, I this is true. And it's $20,000 for an oil change. And I'm working a minimum wage job, let's say suddenly that free thing doesn't sound quite so good. No, that's exactly it. And we're, we're already running into this problem in this country where, uh, you know, we, we have a, a dropping birth rate, there are fewer people working and more people retire. So there's more people drawing on the system, it's getting weighed down. And it's only going to get worse unless there's a change of something. You know, we either need more kids or more immigrants or cut spending or some combination thereof. It's going to become a bigger and bigger burden on on younger people going forward. Eric, Eric, I'm, I don't know why I'm calling you Eric today. I've never done that before. It's Aaron. I know your name. It's just it's one of those days. Um, I've so often heard politicians say that you can't compare the budget of a country or the budget of a government to a household budget, that they are two entirely different things and not comparable at all. And I'm acknowledging that there are certainly differences between the two, but there has to be some similarity, doesn't there? There has to be some restraint in a national budget the same way you would do with your household budget, or, or are they so different that there is no reason to mention the two of them together? Well, I don't think that politicians like the comparison because it gives people a sense of some parameters, right? Politicians would love to have the ability to just spend on anything they want and not face a budget constraint. It's true that governments are different for a couple of reasons. One, they can raise taxes to get money. Unlike you and I, we can't just go out and raise taxes and force other people to give us money if we, uh, if we need it. We have to earn it. Um, and also, governments don't die. Uh, some people think that's unfortunate, but uh, they can just roll over their debt indefinitely. And, uh, and, you know, so people say, well, you never have to pay the debt back. You just, you just refinance it. And that's true. But the problem is, if at the time you refinance, uh, the interest rate is a lot higher. Again, that's going to have an impact on your bottom line. So, yes, technically it's true there are differences. But those differences are not as big as a lot of politicians would uh, have you believe. And that brings us back to the point we started with on this one and that you tweeted out that I applaud you for doing. And that is, yes, you don't have to ever pay off that debt but you do have to pay for the interest on that debt. And it's an enormous amount of money. And if you don't pay off that debt, you pay that over and over and over and over. And that just seems to be so detrimental and yet so somehow forgotten about. And I don't get it. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's true. You don't have to pay it off, but you have to pay the interest. And that's why I would love to see uh, debates in this country center more on we can have a debate about how much tax should we pay and how many things should government do. But we should all agree that whatever we whatever we decide to do, it should be paid for. Right. We should have a whatever is going out the door. You have to have come in the other side. And so you can have big government, small government, more programs, fewer programs. But whatever you land on, it needs to be paid for. We've somehow decoupled the spending from the revenue. Uh, politicians love that because it's, it's hard to raise taxes, but it's easy to spend money. And I think people need to hold them to account and say, yeah, that's great. But how are you going to pay for what you promised? Aaron Woodrick, the Canadian, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you for pointing out the number today, because I think I honestly do really believe that it's important people realize there is nothing for free. I uh, thank you for doing that, and thank you for joining us tonight. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two weeks ago, the Texas Rangers opened their home season against the Toronto Blue Jays. You may remember that game. And the reason you may remember that game, even if you are not necessarily a diehard baseball fan, or even if you don't remember specific games, is that on that day, there were roughly 40,000 people in the stadium, many who were not wearing masks. And when people saw this in the middle of a pandemic, that the folks in Texas were throwing over the oh, throwing open the gates and saying, hey, we're not worried. Come on in. Let's have a party. A lot of people said, oh, yeah, this is going to be a giant super spreader event. Just wait a couple of weeks and let's see what happens. Just wait a couple of weeks and let's see where things go with this one. Well, it's two weeks later, which is, as everybody knows, if we're in quarantine, it's two weeks. Two weeks is supposed to cover the time that you would get COVID if you're going to get it. Two weeks later, COVID cases, for the most part, are flat in Texas. There has been no giant surge that has come out of this game. How can this be? What does this mean? Does it mean anything? Dr. Karen Mossman is a professor in the Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine and Vice President of Research at McMaster University. She joins us now. Thank you for doing this, doctor. Really appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I'm assuming that that day that the Jays were playing there, whether you're a baseball fan or not, you had probably heard about this, if nothing else, and this idea that they were going to throw things open and see what happens. Did you did you think, like so many other people, that this has the potential to go very, very, very badly? Absolutely. And anytime you have an event with that many people in that close proximity, the potential um, is certainly there. And I'm I'm very happy for them that that did not occur. Well, let's talk about that for a minute and try and answer maybe why not. And just before we get into it, one other thing that we should probably point out, because I know some people are saying, well, the states are doing pretty well with vaccines. They say only about 30% of Texans have been vaccinated. And I don't know if that means one or two vaccines. Either way, um, they're not completely covered. So I don't know that we can point to that. How is it possible then when COVID is still around that it wouldn't have led to a super spreader event? So you bring up an interesting point about how many people have been vaccinated. So I took a quick look at an interest sake um, today. And within the sort of older age group, Texas is actually ahead of many of the states with closer to you know, 65% of 
um, those 65 and older being fully vaccinated. And okay. they're at about the 30% um, being fully vaccinated. What, what I don't know is how many um, people have been given at least one dose. And we do know with vaccines that even with a single dose, you are protected against, you know, severe disease and death. You might not be protected against getting infected and spreading the infection, but for all intents and purposes, what we're understanding is one dose is is very good at preventing against that more severe disease. And so it could be that it was a spreader event, but it's asymptomatic or, or a low level because there were sufficient people that were either fully vaccinated or at least had one vaccine dose. And, and and so that's why they're, you know, urging everybody here now to, even if you can only get one dose for now, go get your one dose because it might not protect you 100%, but it certainly gives you a, a, at least partial protection. I'm reading a, a piece here, and I mean, that that could well be, and again, it's, it's uh, I'm glad you found those extra numbers about the age groups and stuff. I'm reading the Fort Worth Star-Telegram story, and what I find so fascinating is since the governor announced the state was open for business, basically, and you didn't have to, we were, we were going to throw everything open again, they're saying hospitalizations are down 48% and deaths have continued to decline. And you know, as well as I do, that what this will lead to and probably what is already happening when you also look at this baseball game is people are going to say, look, we're being fed a load here. We are being told something that isn't true. Here's the perfect example that should have led to problems. It didn't. Therefore, let's open everything up and just see what happens. What would you say to that? You know, one event doesn't tell the whole story. Um, it, it, it Again, depending on how many have either naturally been infected, even if it was asymptomatic and they didn't realize they were infected, but depending on how many have been exposed, have some level of antibodies, or even got a single dose. Um, but one event doesn't tell the whole picture. And until you know for sure that you have herd immunity and they're estimating, you know, now best estimates, you need 75 to 90% of individuals to be um, vaccinated and, and fully protected to get that herd immunity. Um, until that time, um, y- you might be lucky and, and not have a, a super spreader event. So, or you could equally be unlucky and the one or two people that aren't protected are the ones that are going to get that serious infection um, and and death. So, you know, until they go through a larger period of time where the numbers stay really, really low and they're fully opened, it it could be that they're on the right track and sufficient people have sufficient immunity. But I would not be living down there, be going out and being caught in in a large crowd unprotected. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got wondering as I was listening to this, because, you know, trying to figure this out, and that's why we're talking to you, could this have something to do with variants? Could the the fact that, you know, we could we just be very unlucky up here that we have these crazy variants that seem to be causing all the problem? And if they have just the old school COVID, could that have led to them not having a great problem from this? 
Yeah, it certainly could. And again, it'd be really interesting to know what what variants are found um, within that region. But certainly here with now, you know, the majority of new cases being ascribed to one of the variants, we know that they spread much, much faster and they appear to also have in some um, enhanced disease. Um, And in some cases, they're, you know, we're starting to learn a bit more about um, whether or not they can escape at least some of the immunity that people might have naturally or, or through the vaccines. So that's certainly what's causing, you know, our current, um, the robustness of our current third phase. And and so if, if that is not prevalent, um, it would certainly have an impact on, on what they're seeing or the lack of what they're seeing. Let me ask about that, about the variants and also vaccines, because this is something else that I'm very confused about. And I think a lot of other people are too. Every year when we get the flu shot, if we do, the vaccine we're getting, as I understand it, is slightly different, the vaccine, and it's based on scientists' best guess or examination of what the variant of the flu is going to be that year. It's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all vaccine every time. So how can the COVID vaccines that we're getting be that one-size-fits-all, or are they not that? Could we find that... A year from now, we have to get a whole new set of vaccines because there's a slightly different variant for what we've been given. Yeah, so influenza is a really interesting virus because of the way it's structured and the way it replicates. And it can change quite dramatically year to year. Um, And so with the time it takes to make the vaccines, they, they do have to use their best guess of what strains they think will be circulating. And they do look to, you know, other countries um, to see what's happening in other countries where the the flu season is a little bit earlier, but they really have to do their best guess to start the production of the vaccines ahead of time, but a very different type of virus structurally. With this particular virus, we know a lot about um, the particular protein called the spike protein. Everyone's probably heard about the spike protein. And it's And these viruses are constantly um, mutating. That's a natural part of their infection rate. And the more pressure you put on to a virus, the more likely those mutations that give it a selective advantage are going to show up. Um, And because this virus is, is so prevalent, it's not surprising that we're seeing um, variants. This was expected. And it's not surprising that the variants or the mutations that are successful for the virus are the ones that allow them to escape immunity. Um, so, so this is completely expected and it, it will affect um, potentially the potency of the vaccines. It will also likely mean that, um, you know, this will become a, a seasonal um, coronavirus um, vaccination. So when you go for your flu shot, you also get a coronavirus shot. It wouldn't surprise me. And and part of that is because of the, um, you know, now the prevalence. We know that there's a, there are a number of different, um, we've had the original SARS. We have this new um, SARS-CoV-2. There are already four other human coronaviruses don't typically cause much more than a common cold. But we also know that, your immune response to this virus isn't really robust. 
So even people that were naturally infected, they lose their immunity to the virus quite quickly. And so it, it's not so much about the variants that will likely have a, a seasonal um, vaccination. It's more because, you know, the more we understand about the virus and the immune response to the virus, it, it, you, you lose your immunity fairly quickly. So, so that would be the reason why you would really want that yearly vaccine is just to keep boosting the response that you have to provide that lifelong protection. Perhaps a silly question and maybe even unimportant, but is there any reason why you couldn't get your flu shot and your COVID shot if we had to do that at the same time? Does the body reject two different things coming in at the same moment or could it be at the same time? No, and, and if, you, um, if you've heard of the, there are a number of vaccines that, you know, we give to children at the same time, measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine. Right, so yeah. That's, so that's a trivalent vaccine against three different viruses. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had completely forgotten that, and maybe it's because it's been a while since I had one, like <laughs> a lot of years. Um, last thing before I let you go, what? and this is a very broad question, but what are we looking for? What number, is there a number that we would be looking for in Ontario to get town to, do you think, before we can get back to normal? Do we have to get to zero cases for us to get life back to normal, or is it just down to a thousand or a hundred or is it not really a number? Is it just a sign that there's not growth? How how do we look at this for the future? Yeah. So, you know, so not being an epidemiologist, I'll just give you my opinion. Um, But certainly in talking to colleagues, it's really about um, the severity and the hospitalizations. I mean, we know that there will likely be, um, you know, community spread for quite a while. Um, We know that, um, you know, the vaccines and the herd immunity are certainly going to have a huge impact on that. I think realistically, getting down to zero um, and zero positivity, um, that will take a very, very long time. And as the vaccines were allowed and as people get, um, you know, at least partial immunity and we have the majority of the population with at least partial immunity, I suspect we might get the odd case of of actual disease, um, but it will more likely be very mild, um, you know, the asymptomatic type infections. And then as we do start to roll out, you know, potentially a yearly booster, um, it, it, I don't think we'll ever get down to absolute zero, but as long as I think we get to a point where we have that herd immunity and we're not seeing the severe disease and hospitalizations, that's when we can really start to to open things up and, and to relax um, all of the, you know, the rules and regulations. Dr. Karen Mossman from McMaster, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today was a difficult day. Uh, unquestionably, unquestionably a difficult day today. Because, well, for hockey players, because the Ontario Hockey League uh, finally pulled the plug on its season. And as I said a moment ago, not unexpected, I don't think. Not when you're into April and it's been, today was 405 days since the last game was played. It's a long time and we're getting close to the summertime. And even though it doesn't look like it right now. Nonetheless, um, it is a difficult decision for a lot of different reasons. I want to bring in Michael Ann Lauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. This is a tough day for you and specifically for your players, I would guess, that they've lost an entire season now. 
Yes, uh, no doubt, Scott. It's 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 been a challenging, uh, a, a tough for our players, the parents of our players. Uh, it's been tough for our fans, uh, even our staff. Uh, Steve Steos, who wears his uh, heart on his sleeve, uh, you know, has been uh, uh, has been on Zoom calls uh, with all our players on a regular basis. We've uh, you know guest speakers that try to keep them motivated. Uh, um, and uh, and today is a bit is a somber day to say the least. Um, but uh, you're right; it's been it's it's been a, a challenge challenge day for everybody, uh, including the OHL. Uh, um, if you listened to Dave Branch earlier today, kind of spelled it, uh, you know, uh, from a league perspective and owners, um, like. Uh, you know, like I said to the players, I had a Zoom call with all the players and their parents uh, earlier earlier this evening. Um, you know, it's been it's been a challenging year to try to get the players uh, on the ice. Uh, if I haven't had thirty OHL board of governor calls, um, it's it's probably more hmm. uh, throughout the year in terms of trying to find an opportunity where it would be safe to have our players play and uh safe would be mean that the chief medical officer would give us the green light to play and and uh you know the windows of opportunity were were not not open uh and many no but i understand you were close though at one point not very recently i understand you were very close to coming back certainly at the beginning of the month we got it we finally after you know after uh creating, you know, uh, different options along the way. And, and one of them was a bubble option, which we were able to successfully get the chief medical officer to give us a thumbs up. But that was at the end of the month. And uh, the very next day, you know, the, <clears throat> the third wave uh, count uh, was a bit out of control. And all of a sudden the government had to create, uh, you know, lockdown uh, uh, like the timing couldn't have been worse. But then again, maybe it couldn't have been better uh, because had we gotten the okay, and then all of a sudden two days later there's a lockdown, and it 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 would have been a very difficult and even more anxious uh, time to mm. try to integrate something through this period right now. Um, our goal all the way along was to try to get these players, particularly the draft you know, draft eligible players and and the overagers who are in their last year of the OHL, to get them showcased, if nothing else. Uh, you know, whether it be a 20 game season, uh, in a bubble setting where, you know, in, 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 uh, in green zones, uh, in, in Ontario, cause it's not everywhere in Ontario that, that, that isn't hot spots. Um, and, uh, we definitely had the, uh, we finally had the, the Ontario government, the chief medical officer, most importantly, giving us a thumbs up. And then, uh, obviously, uh, uh, we ran out of runway, <clears throat> um, you know, in terms in light of the fact that, you know, from a timing standpoint and, and, and now we're in a lockdown for, for weeks to come. So, uh, that's, that's let me, let me break your part. players, Michael, let me break your team into sort of three groups of players. And I want to talk about two of them in particular. One of them you've touched on already. I mean, the OHL has an age limit. You graduate, you can't stay around forever. Mm-hmm. And so you've had to talk to some players today who have spent their last year as a hockey player, maybe for some of them, literally their last year as a hockey player sitting on the sidelines, that would be very difficult. What do you say to those players who are graduating, who have to watch the end of their hockey career from dry land? Yeah. I mean, uh, what do you say is, is, uh, 
uh, it's tough. It's tough on these, and uh, Steve uh, addressed them actually uh, separately today, um, uh, and, and uh, amongst uh, highlighted them. Um, it's um, it's a you know it, it is a tough time for them. Uh, having said that, uh, you know one of the great things about being an OHL player is that you have an education um, package waiting for you um next year so they're you know we're, we're going to try in the ohl to try to create a showcase uh for these players in particular so that U sports can have a look at them or perhaps other scouts in in in, in the higher leagues uh some of these overagers had the opportunity to play in the american hockey league this year where, where they where they could or the east coast hockey league um but uh, trying to give them the opportunities but the one opportunity that's you know that 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 they have, uh, or is the fact that they have, you know, they have a, they have the years of university education, uh, and that's one of the things that the owners, you know, we're not going to give up, regardless of the fact that we didn't have a season, you know, honored, honored the uh, the education packages uh, that they were uh, entitled to. I said there were three groups of players. Another group is the young players, the rookies who have lost the year of development. I'll leave them for now because we can always come back. But the third group that I want to ask about, and this one is really tough because you've got a bunch of players who are draft eligible for the NHL draft this year. This was supposed to be the year they got scouted. This was the year they could develop. This was the year that essentially they could live the dream that I think every OHL player has when they come to the league. And that is potentially to be able to get the opportunity to be drafted and then join an NHL team. Those guys have not been scouted. They've not been seen. They haven't had a chance to prove themselves. What do you think the impact on the draft on them on all, what's that going to do for them who are now in this kind of limbo that scouts don't really know what to make of them? Yeah, so being part owner of the Montreal Canadiens, uh, uh, obviously I'm, I'm, you know, I get those questions from our amateur scouts all the time. Is like, when is the OHL going to come back to play? Can we see them? Um, and and the OHL has, has a history of having more more of their players drafted to the NHL than any other league uh, in the world. Um, and so it is going to be a very tough, uh, you know. Uh, a t- you know, t- tough situation. You know, and I've talked to Trevor Timmons, who, who runs our who, who runs our scouting uh, at Montreal, and it, it's uh, it's going to be a bit of a crapshoot for all these guys. And and I I probably would would guess that less OHL players will get drafted to the NHL this year than in previous years. On the same uh, same count, I would also uh, say that there will be more OHL players drafted to the NHL next year. And just because you're not drafted this year doesn't mean that you're not eligible for for following years. Uh, you know, a young man like Brendan Sagan, for example, uh, did not get drafted in his first year, eligible, and was drafted the following year. Um, you know, some players uh, during their draft year get, uh, you know, have to have. You know, a lot of people have shoulder surgeries and they're out for the whole season, and and they're they're unable to. Uh, so it's it's very unfortunate uh but at the end of the day uh, you know while this is a somber day for all our players and staff and and it's also uh you know i feel very confident that next year we will be uh, there will be a sense of normalcy uh so long as the federal government gets the mm. vaccines uh, uh and and we we have uh 
uh, we're able to uh, to have uh, you know uh, hockey as 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 a uh, you know back in back in in, uh, in the, on Labor Day. Um, Do you worry about the league's place, its prestige, or its stature, its 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 place as the You've talked about it, the top developmental league in the world. More players drafted out of there than anywhere else. Because mm-hmm. if the mock drafts for the NHL now are correct, and they're not guaranteed, but you, you know a lot of experts looking at these, <clears throat> there's a lot of NCAA players, U.S. college players expected to go high. A ton of European players. Do you worry that players now look and go, well, I can get into the NHL through the NCAA, so I'll go that route, or I can do? Do you worry the OHL by losing this year? potentially loses some players who otherwise might have come here um i i don't think so if things are back to normal uh next year then you know it, we weren't a top develop, developmental league uh by accident uh and we're not going to stop doing the right things uh going forward um and then by the way an ncaa player that gets drafted is it's it's you know later uh later dates and typically you know players want to get drafted earlier then later, um, I don't. I don't anticipate seeing that. Like I said, there's no doubt that there's a drop, but that option has always been there. Uh, personally, my son, who was drafted by the Windsor Spitfires before I bought the Bulldogs, I encouraged him to play junior A, and he played for St. Mike's, so he could get a, you know, he could play NCAA. Um, his dream was always to try to make the NHL at as a young age, but, uh, so the option is, it has always been there and the option will be there next year. And, uh, I don't anticipate, uh, a dilution of quality of players in the OHL going forward. I think it's just an unfortunate set of circumstances. Uh, the Ontario government, it, you know, was very stringent. If you look at the Raptors and the Blue Jays, they're still not playing, uh, in Canada. Uh, and I know being part owner of the Canadians that that when we went we were trying to get uh, approvals uh, at the NHL level. Um, you know, Ontario was one of the toughest places to get to get um, uh, the approvals uh, f- uh, for them to to play. Yeah, David uh, Branch Ontario. today. David Branch today said that when the <laughs> Ontario was when the government was going to allow the OHL to play or not, it was holding up the Leafs and the Senators as the standard so that their return to play policies, you guys were going to have to match. That's a high bar, not just because they're big teams. Those are multi, multi, multi-million dollar enterprises with multi-million dollar players. The OHL doesn't have the kind of money. The I mean, some owners do, but most don't have the kind of money that NHL owners would have. That would have been a very difficult thing to pay for all that, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and that's why I mean, in a bridge uh, season, and and uh, just to give you a, a, a perspective, uh, just you know, to play twenty, you know, uh, and I'm just this is rough numbers, but I, I don't have the exact numbers at hand, but I do recall seeing COVID testing. Just the COVID testing alone was uh, uh, was three million dollars because part obviously part of the protocol is getting wow. players tested on a daily basis. Wow. Um, so that just to give you perspective. Now the NHL is obviously playing, uh, you know, without fans with uh, seventy million dollar, uh, you know, roughly uh, a cap salary caps and and uh, uh, and a much longer season than if we had we played for six weeks uh, to get these players, uh, you know, showcased. 
Um, but that's yeah, so that, that you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's 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 uh, it's a huge it's a huge amount of money. But uh, um, the OHL owners uh, and the league were committed to try to get these players on the ice, even if it was for you know a mm. short season. It wasn't about trying to get a champion. Uh, per se, it was trying to get these players uh, on the ice doing the thing that they love, and and uh, um, but it had to be done in a safe, uh, in a safe manner. To us, to me, it's you know, as you know, Scott, I I don't own this team uh, for uh, from a business perspective. Uh, I had no problem writing a check to make these kids' dreams come true, but uh, not at the not at the not at the risk of the health and welfare, and I guess Ontario government has, you know, had pretty stringent uh, rules and that uh, that had to be overcome. But but and look, I I think this is a compliment rather than something embarrassing. I mean, you're a very successful businessman. You could have probably cut. Well, not probably. You could have covered the cost of this if you wanted to. But I'm not sure every team in the league could have. You could have potentially brought the league back. But you may have had some teams in financial peril for the next year or for the future if you'd done that. Uh, that's that, that's probably the case. Yeah, I would I would uh, I would I would suggest that might be the the situation. I I, I can't really point at it uh, in any way, shape, or form. But uh, like I said, it was definitely uh, with this a bridge uh, opportunity we would have been able to. We, we wanted it. We were ready. <laughs> we were ready until until. Uh, the government kind of did it mm. about face at the last second, and, and rightly so, I might add. Uh, I'm not uh, taking anything away, but it basically it was it was you know literally within 24 hours of, of, uh, of getting approval to go forward. Now, we have a minute left. Um, you've yeah. mentioned a couple times about next year. Uh, in, you're not Kreskin. Um, we don't know what the future is going to hold as far as COVID and vaccines and everything else. But do you have any idea what has to happen? For the OHL to get started, kind of like normal in the fall. I'm not Kraskin Scott, but I do uh, my, my business that makes the money allows me to enjoy uh, this passion is is uh, is healthcare logistics, and and I, I have the privilege of of of, do, of having the contract of the Ontario vaccine distribution among other provinces, uh, but. Uh, you know the reality is is you know uh, vaccines in arms is going to uh, get us to normalcy. Uh, you know when I look at the stats of this country, when only 19% of our Canadians are have been have had one shot in their arms, uh, all you have to do is look at the UK, who by the way had the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, which seems to be a controversy here in this country, uh, uh, and and they have over 33 million, over half their population has received at least one vaccine, and you know if you look at at uh, you know, a picture of Soho on the weekend. Uh, you know, there were there. It was uh, it was you know business business as usual. Uh, so th- there's an element. You know, once I think we get 50 percent of Canadians vaccinated, there'll be a, 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 a at least one vaccine, which is you know the, the way more efficient than, than no vaccines. Obviously, uh, I think we'll we'll be in that position. Uh, from all counts, uh, you know. And come July, we'll be, we'll be, we'll hopefully be there. Um, so long as as the pharma companies continue to 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 send the vaccines to this country, and and we will be, uh, you know, we will we will have a sense of normalcy. So I feel quite confident that by Labor Day, when the kids are are coming in for training camp and registering for school and and getting ready, uh, we will. And frankly, whether we have 
fans in the stands or half fans, that's that to me is not not relevant. I think it's a matter of we'll be in a position to to have the the players play safely uh, in our in our 17 communities uh, in Ontario and three in the United States, um, and uh, and have them enjoy the 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 passion and the dreams that they have, and hopefully we'll make them come true. And and a ton of Ontario hockey players will get drafted that following year. I don't know where you're going to find the half fans, but I'm sure they're around too, as well as the full fans. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Michael Andlauer, yeah. owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, thanks for taking time today. I know it was a tough day, but I really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I would find it hard to believe that you had not heard the news from today that the verdict in the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis came to a verdict. The jury, after a couple days of deliberation, uh, came to a verdict and found the former Minneapolis police officer guilty on uh, second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. I want to bring in Jeff Manishin. He's a former prosecutor, a criminal defense counsel, um, a man you've heard his name many times because he is the lead defense counsel in many prominent trials in this area. Jeff, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Certainly, Scott. My pleasure. Uh, but got a bunch of questions about this, and uh, I don't want to dive too deeply into it because I know you're here in Canada and the U.S. system is slightly different. And so, it, I mean, I don't know if you can explain this or not, but one of the things I was very puzzled on today was the fact that he was convicted on, as I say, second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Here, usually, the, you will be charged with something. Let's say you're charged with second-degree murder. The jury could come back with that or with a lesser and included offense, they could say, well, you didn't intend to do it, but you killed him and you should have known, so it's manslaughter. How can you be convicted of three things that all seem to be the same event and three different levels? Scott, that's a terrific question. And the reason I say that is, um, in Canada, you're right. In a, in a homicide such as this, a charge might involve whether it's first-degree murder or second-degree murder or manslaughter. It would be a single count. And the jury would be told if it was planned and deliberate or in the course of forceful confinement or other circumstances, potentially first. If they aren't satisfied of that, but they're satisfied the unlawful killing occurred with the intent necessary for second-degree murder, second-degree murder. Without the intent, but still an unlawful killing, manslaughter. One count. The states have these various gradations. So they have a second-degree murder and a third-degree murder and a second-degree manslaughter. And the nuances and details are variations depending on levels of intention, levels of recklessness, the levels of unlawful conduct. Do you know, Scott, in Canada we have a concept based on a case, a guy named Kineapple, K-I-E-N-A-P-P-L-E, years ago. The idea is we don't, we don't allow people to be convicted for more than one offense out of essentially the same delict, the same criminal misconduct. So, for example, if somebody's charged with impaired and over 80, you can't in law be convicted of both because they're really out of the same event. If you have somebody who's charged with stolen, being a thief and he or she is in possession of stolen property, so you're charging with theft and possession. In law, you wouldn't convict them of both because you're using that unlawful possession to prove the theft. The state, Scott, I guess, allow for multiple convictions. The other thing that can happen occasionally in Canada, you might have, for example, a, a charge of sexual assault and there may be another offense of sexual interference. There may be variations in relation to the same conduct. If ultimately a jury came back with a conviction on both counts, 
a judge would probably stay proceedings on one of the two counts if the other one essentially covered the criminal conduct. So, Scott, you've identified a difference, a very real difference between the American criminal procedure in Canada. We wouldn't have that here. The Another thing now that is the same, and I had to look this one up to make sure, and I found this fascinating, that one of the things that he was convicted on was second-degree unintentional murder. And yet, second-degree murder is, is an interesting one. Here, again, second-degree murder, at least murder implies there was an intent. Again, manslaughter, and you can explain this better, but manslaughter is you should have known you could have killed the person, but maybe you didn't intend to. But murder, second-degree, you, you, you were trying to kill them even if you didn't plan it. First-degree is planned. Second-degree unintentional murder sounds like almost an oxymoron to Canadians. It would be in Canada. Because in Canada, the difference between manslaughter and murder is intent. So if, if you have committed an unlawful act that results in somebody's death, you can get to manslaughter. If at the time that you did that unlawful act, you did so, we have a general proposition with the intent. When you meant to cause the person death, or you meant to cause them bodily harm that you knew was likely to cause death, and you were reckless as to whether or not death resulted, there's the necessary intent to move that unlawful killing to murder. We don't really have an unintentional murder. But again, it's the gradations of murder that they've developed in the States. The concept of a second-degree murder, a third-degree murder, a second-degree manslaughter. I remember, Scott, when he was first, when, when they were looking into potential charges, and I think he was initially charged with some, the third-degree murder charge initially was, I think, struck out, and there was an appeal by the prosecution, and it was reinstated. They have their own elements of the offenses and their mm. own variations but you're right again, Scott, it's the concept of an unintentional murder is an oxymoron. We don't generally have a murder that's unintentional. Let me jump to something else here, which I think is a huge part of this trial, and we'll get to why in just a second. But in your experiences, you've done big, big trials before. You've done big jury trials before. Is it your belief maybe not in the cases where a jury is sequestered, but generally, do juries know what's being said and what's going on around the case outside the courtroom? Well, a judge would instruct the jury not to pay any attention to the media, whether news, whether social media or otherwise. And certainly that's something that would be important to tell the jury at the outset. We'll go back a step. I have had occasion to deal with trials where the arrest, investigation and other circumstances may have gotten a lot of publicity and it has let us question jurors about whether or not they'd heard or read anything about the case, and whether whatever they read or heard might have affected their ability to decide the case fairly and partially on the evidence. And I've been surprised to find, Scott, now this is maybe some years back, a lot of people have not kept up on what the news media may have in relation to coverage of a particular case. But there's no way in this particular case, you, if you found anybody in Minneapolis who didn't know about this, they'd be too stupid to have on a jury. Like and it's it, almost it, impossible to yeah. think you could find people who were in, uh, ignorant of this. And in fact, I'm sure that in the course, I know that in the course of the vetting process of asking jurors about whether they read or heard anything about the case, and in the States they allow a broader range of questions of jurors. The issue isn't so much whether they read or heard anything, Scott. It would be whether or not they'd formed any opinion on the case, which would prevent them being able to decide the case fairly and impartially on the evidence. So that's the all-important distinction. You may have read or heard about the case, but if you've kept an open mind and are prepared to keep an open mind, you could serve as a potential juror. But so, there's a difference so in here. Your question is likely jurors would have heard about it, sure. The question will be influence. 
but Jeff, the difference here, and I, and I think uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there's a real, uh, an issue here. Look, I, I don't, th- we all saw the video. I think we all have an opinion that he probably got exactly the, the conviction that he deserved here, but this is different because driving in and out of the courtroom, a courthouse, they would have seen Minneapolis boarded up in anticipation of possible riots if they made the quote, quote, wrong decision. That's that's different in a way from not being able to make a an objective decision based on the evidence. You know, if you're a juror, if I vote a certain way, I could lead to people dying. I could have the city burning down. I could be I could be a pariah and have people burning down my house. That That's a that's a weird place for a juror to be. Absolutely. And it's exceptional. If we think about it, Scott, it's probably this jury in many respects would have a responsibility that is really almost different from many, if not all, other juries in the past because of the potential social impact of their verdict. So it's almost superhuman challenge to say to them, notwithstanding what you must be aware of as to the potential impact of your verdict, can you still decide this case only on the evidence? Huge challenge. That's what we look for them to do. Did they do it? Well, that's always that'd be a question we'd have to always try and evaluate afterwards. And in the states, of course, too, the jurors can talk about what they've done in their deliberations. You can't in Canada. We may yet hear stories from them, but I bet you that they will say to us or to the media they still never decided it's on the evidence. Of course, of course. Uh, we only have a few seconds left here, a minute or so left. But one other thing, and this was, and this one I say about the jury, why this is such an important part about this. Obviously, it's a jury trial. It's going to be important, but. There was a congresswoman, Maxine Waters, who, um, Democrat, very outspoken, who this came up in the courtroom with the judge. She said some very inflammatory things a day or two back, telling African-American people seemingly that if this verdict does not come down with the right decision, they should become more confrontational. Uh, the judge actually says that could be crowns for a divorce because the uh, not divorce, I, I missed uh, uh, an, appeal. an appeal. Thank you. So I don't know where divorce came from. Okay. That could be grounds for an appeal because the jury now could have again heard if you don't make the right decision, we're really going to have rights. Do you think that there's something to that? Do you think that would be or could be sufficient grounds to have a new trial? No, I don't think so. I, I think the judge in the same breath a little later on said that I don't know how many people listen to congressmen anyway. So I think <laughs> what true. he was doing was wrapping the congresswoman's knuckles. He was doing a bit of, let's just say, uh, uh, creating a little bit of atmosphere to say you should never have said this. And, oh, you might have created a ground of appeal. Uh, uh, the defense apparently did move for a mistrial. I heard one of the American commentators talk about it. He didn't do enough to be able to protect his right. But I'm going to say to you, Scott, that the likelihood is, in my view, very slim that that would be enough to be able to get a new trial. A comment by a congresswoman? No. There have been cases I think I've read about over the years where if the president's made a comment or a prime minister, you have somebody in a position of leadership attempting to influence a verdict. That's a different story. A congresswoman raises the potential for confrontation, and that could be enough for a new trial. I wouldn't think so. Do you believe that in a case like this, that whether it's an appeal or anything else, do you believe that there is ever the thought that goes through the judges or anyone else's mind that, you know, there's enough here to have convicted him, even if there's something that may be a technicality, the risk to society is such that let's just go with it and not rock the boat and not create problems. It, it's not an out, it's not a, a, a crazy, a uh, embarrassment to the system, so let's just leave well enough alone. Could that ever happen? If we stay with that for a sec, let's say that the defense applied for a mistrial. What would it take for the judge to say, yes, I shall declare it, or no, I won't? 
Um, I think the judge, in accordance with his conscience and his oath, would say, if I genuinely feel it's enough, I'll order the mistrial and the consequences will be as they were, as they are. But if I generally don't feel it's enough, I won't. That's the kind of integrity you want from the judiciary. It's the same kind of integrity you want from jurors. You're deciding the case on the evidence. The judge is deciding the case based on his or her opinion of the law, not because of consequences. It's, uh, this, this one was so interesting. And again, I, I don't think there's too many people that look at the video and saw the story and said, oh, this is a miscarriage of justice, that there was a guilty verdict. I think quite the contrary. But boy, oh boy, as you say, superhuman almost decision-making for the... Could you imagine... And I've never been in a jury room, but if you had been the Henry Fonda 12 Angry Men character who's trying to argue for not guilty in this particular case, I mean, it's just, it's almost impossible to believe that they would have possibly come back with any other decision but the one they did. Well, Scott, I was in a, the Hamilton Lawyers Club production of 12 Angry Men. I know you were. That's why I mentioned in 1983. it. <laughs> um, I, I think that if you had a juror who was arguing for anything, it might be a lower level of culpability to get down from second to third degree or down from third degree to manslaughter. I mean, Scott, I could ask this question, and it's one to think about. If the jury had come in with not guilty of second but guilty of third degree murder or not guilty of second or not, uh, not guilty of third, guilty of second degree manslaughter, what would have been the reaction? I mean, for us, we might say we don't know that we would appreciate the gradations. From the standpoint of a public reaction, they might feel, no, he he didn't get what he should have gotten for the full measure of the law. The issue, the good question, as far as I'm concerned, too, is what's justice? Is justice a particular outcome? Or is justice a fair trial where a decision is made on the evidence? Ah, uh, that's a, you know what, that's a fantastic question, because I think that it differs depending on what the situation is. And I think in this case, I think that most people would say justice was the harshest conviction that he could probably get and anything less than that would not be justice. I don't know that that answers the question, but I bet that would be the public perception. And the other way one could respond by saying is there was a solid evidentiary basis for the jury to convict of the highest level of culpability. So we could say, therefore, if there was a sound basis in the evidence and the matter was fully contested and the jury had a chance to consider everything, there was a valid sound basis for them to decide it without concern about social consequences. On the evidence, we'd say there's justice there. That is Jeff Manish, and really appreciate, I know that uh, people don't know, we, we called you in on this at the last minute with no prep time on American law. Really appreciate you coming in and talking with us today. Thanks for the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. These are issues which are of interest to us, as well as our friends and colleagues in the United States. So we've all followed it, and we've all wondered about it, and the, the, the issue of justice is something that's relevant for us, as well as the Americans and everybody. Jeff Manishin, Criminal Defense Counsel. Thanks so much for doing this today. Oh, you're most welcome, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.